listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back. It's episode eight, Ohio versus discrimination. You're listening to Ohio V the World, the world's only Ohio history podcast presented by GoBus. Uh, visit GoBus.com and they will take you anywhere you need to go in the state of Ohio. Winter is back here in Ohio, so we're recording uh, with a blizzard going on outside around us, a nice steady snow. And today we're going to be talking about Colonel Charles Young of Wilberforce, Ohio. Colonel Young was not only the first African-American colonel in the U.S. military, but he's the highest ranking member of the military until World War II. No one before him had, had ever reached the level of colonel. Also the first black military attache to both Liberia and Haiti. The first black U.S. National Park Superintendent out at Sequoia. We'll talk about his years in California. And also the third graduate of West Point the third African-American graduate from the United States Military Academy. Graduates in 1884. We'll talk about the life of Colonel Young, how someone overcame so much discrimination uh, and became a symbol for not just courage in this country, but an African-American hero, ignored by the white press, ignored by his white superiors, all the way up to the presidency. But he overcomes all of that. Our interview took place at the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center, a one of our 58 sites of the Ohio History Connection, an amazing museum opened in the 1980s, um, and it's on the campus of Wilberforce University, which is the first private historically black university uh, in, in, in the country. And certainly here in Ohio is a very rich history. We'll talk with author Brian Shellam, uh, the author of four different books about Colonel Young, the leading scholar when it comes to Charles Young, black officer in a Buffalo Soldier Regiment, the military career of Charles Young, one of his four books, uh, and the one that we'll be highlighting today. Also, we'll sit down with the executive director of the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center, Dr. Charles Wash, great guy. Um, see Charles a lot with the servant on the board with the Ohio History Connection and We'll play some of our interview with him, not just about the museum and how you can visit it, but also about Colonel Young in the city of Wilberforce, Ohio. Wilberforce in, in southwest Ohio, located just east of Dayton uh, and, and just outside of Xenia, Ohio. But it's about eight miles to the south of Yellow Springs. That's where our beer will be coming from today. And we are with Yellow Springs Brewery, one of the really popular growing breweries here uh, in the Buckeye State. We're having their beer. It's a Saison Captain Stardust. As we talk about Colonel Young, we're having the Captain Stardust Saison. Uh, super drinkable. Some Saisons can just be a little bit, I don't know, uh, just a little too, you know, here they always use the word rustic when they're talking about a, a Saison. This one's got a little more of a fruity uh, feel to it. It's, it's not bitter. 
uh, 6.5% alcohol, really good beer. Again, Captain Stardust. Go to yellowspringsbrewery.com. You can schedule a tour. Uh, they do tours Saturdays at 5 o'clock, uh, and they're open every day uh, in the afternoon. Really cool place. The home of Dave Chappelle, one of my favorite comedians. So check out not just yellowspringsbrewery.com, but also Yellow Springs, Ohio. Really cool little hippie town um, that a lot of people have a lot of fun in. So thanks again to them, and check out their beer anywhere here in Ohio. You should be able to find it. And Yellow Springs, just down the road from Wilberforce, the hometown of Charles Young. Also the home of the NAAMCC, the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center. So we'll head there now. We'll talk about the highest-ranking military official, a man who overcame a lifetime of oppression and discrimination. We'll talk with author Brian Shellam and the director of this incredible hidden gem of a museum in Wilberforce, the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center. We'll talk to Dr. Chuck Walsh. Ladies and gentlemen, Let's take a ride with Colonel Charles Young. It's episode eight, Ohio vs. Discrimination. Ohio View the World has been brought to you by GoBus. Hit up ridegobus.com, check out their cheap rates and routes all over the Buckeye State. Next time you need a ride around the state of Ohio, whether it's northwest or down the Queen City of Cincinnati, northeast Ohio or southeast Ohio, and all points in between, go to ridegobus.com. Thanks again to GoBus for sponsoring the rest of Season 3. Again, check them out, RideGoBus.com. They have routes, super cheap rates, really nice buses, safe Wi-Fi, reclining, comfortable seats. Uh, the best way to travel if you're looking for to get around the state of Ohio. The subject of Episode 8, Charles Young, is born into slavery in 1864. And as we start our discussion with Brian Shellam, we ask him about how did he get to Ohio? How did he get to the North and to freedom? Well, he was born, he was born in, in, uh, uh, into enslavement in, in uh, uh, 1864 to Gabriel Young and Arminta Young uh, in Helena, Kentucky. Uh, uh, in, that's, a, that's in Mason County in Kentucky, in northern Kentucky. Um, uh, he was born the same day that Grant assumed command of the Union Army, and yeah. uh, you know, to the, in a civil war that ended the the, the uh, uh, institution of slavery into which he was born. Um, uh, his father fought in the Union Army. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. He uh, his father uh, he tried two times to run away as a uh, uh, and, and join the army. The first time he went away, he he ran away to a. A Union camp nearby um, tried to join his his owner. You know, rode in and and basically took him back. Um, he su- he succeeded the second time he ran away. Um, took his wife and and one you know less than one year old child uh, Charles Young with him and uh, ended up in Ripley, uh, Ohio, where he he joined the Union Army. Young grows up in Ripley, Ohio just across the river from Maysville, Kentucky, and a, a very famous town when it comes to African Americans here in the state. You can go back and listen to last season, episode 10, Ohio versus Slavery, our episode on the Underground Railroad, uh, where we focused a lot on, on the city of Ripley and John Rankin. Uh, John Rankin is the John Rankin House, one of our sites for the Ohio History Connection, uh, a great place. 
and African-American abolitionist John Parker, who knew the Young family and knew Charles Young. So go back and listen to that episode, really fun. But we talked to author Brian Shellam about Ripley, how Charles Young goes to an integrated high school. I think uh, Ripley was known as one of those key uh, way stations in the Underground Railroad. Uh, It was home to to well-known African-American abolitionist John Parker. Uh, He was the one who enlisted Gabriel uh, in the Army. Uh, They later became close associates and and, uh, neighbors. Uh, It was also home to a white reverend, uh, John Rankin, a white educator and, and abolitionist. Um, and the, the town, after, uh, at, after the Civil War, as Young was growing up, was a, was a great place to grow up for Young and, and a good place to get a basic education. Um, you know, where else does he live besides, well, there's Ripley, there's Wilberforce, anywhere else in Ohio that he lived that yeah. you might remember? I feel like there's some in the book. Yeah, initially when Gabriel uh, came back from his uh, Civil War service, uh, he lived for a short time. Uh, just, tow- uh, just north of uh, the town of Aberdeen, a river town of Aberdeen. Uh, but eventually he moved to, to Ripley in the 1870s, uh, and, and Charles Young grew up in that town. Uh, he graduated from high school, an integrated high school, and uh, taught in the black schools in, in Ripley for two years before he went off to West Point. Charles Young is a very smart man. He graduates from Ripley. Like you said, he goes on to teach there. There had already been two different African-American cadets at the military academy. Young would go and try and take that test. We talked to Brian, just how does a black kid from from Ripley, Ohio, with no connections, get himself into West Point? No, he was, uh, well, uh, 1883, he's teaching school in Ripley, and uh, he sees an advertisement in the newspaper for a competitive uh, examination to, to, to get to West Point. Uh, some some family tradition gives Gabriel credit for seeing the the article in the Ripley Bee, and encouraging his son to take it uh, take the test. So uh, he uh, he went to Hillsboro, Ohio, took the test, um, scored the second highest score, um, and uh, um, so the the the, uh, the cadet who came in first place. Um, was appointed, uh, but he quit uh, within the first year, and so Charles Young, as the alter- alternate, uh, got the nomination uh, as an alternate in 1884. If Charles Young experienced some kind of, some form of 1870s, 1880s equality in Ripley, Ohio, he did not experience that at West Point. He was treated much worse when he got in. His first year, which he ultimately has to repeat, would have been enough for anyone else to just quit. But not Charles Young. We talked to Brian about his West Point military career and the difficult road he faced. Yeah, he got off to a, a, a rocky start, as you say. The, it, the West Point has enormous challenges, uh, no matter who you are. But but for him, uh, you know, it. it there was a racially charged atmosphere. He was, uh, uh, he was hazed. He was socially ostracized. He was silenced his first year. Um, uh, Young was uh, tremendously well-prepared and talented in, the, in the, uh, um, what I would call the soft arts. The, uh, um, but he had, he had difficulties in math his first year. Uh, he flunked math his first year, uh, but the, the academic board 
uh, gave him the opportunity to, to repeat his, his plebe year. So he had to go through that whole thing again uh, in order to, to move on and, and graduate from West Point. I mean, talk about how difficult it was just to be in his position then have to repeat his plebe yeah, year. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. he, was, he was silenced by most of his classmates, uh, you know, me, meaning that they, he was socially ostracized. They didn't talk to him except for in the line of duty. Um, now, he wasn't totally isolated. He had, uh, his roommate was John Alexander, the second uh, black graduate at West Point. So they, they roomed together for, the, for Young's first three years there. So he wasn't totally isolated. Um, and, uh, you know, the longer he was at West Point, um, uh, there, there was a small group of maybe a dozen classmates who, white classmates, who eventually bef befriended him. Um, and uh, that would have taken years, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, over the years, um, you know, he, because of his determination uh, and his and his will to succeed, he uh, kind of earned the grudging, grudging respect of uh, a small number of his white classmates and and most of the instructors at West Point. Young graduates as the second lieutenant, only the third African American to do so. It would be another forty-seven years. In 1936, Benjamin O. Davis uh, would actually graduate from West Point almost 50 years after Charles Young. He stationed out west in the 9th and 10th Cavalry, where he would serve the majority of his career, were African-American units. We have a segregated army. He's out in, in Nebraska, out in the west, in the plains, and he's fighting in the Indian Wars, or he's at least stationed. And the 9th and 10th were known as the Buffalo Soldier Regiments. We asked Brian about his time on the plains in the late 1880s, early 1890s. And what was a Buffalo Soldier? You hear it from the, the famous Bob Marley song. But where did that term come from? And Charles Young, was he the leader of the Buffalo Soldiers? Well, after his home leave from West Point uh, in 1889, he uh, uh, went out to his first assignment as a second lieutenant with the 9th Cavalry. He was assigned to, to uh, uh, Troop B, 9th Cavalry, which was then stationed at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. Um, served there. Later, you know, within a year, um, his troop was, was moved to, they, they regularly rotated units between posts, isolated posts out out west, and so he moved to Fort Duchesne, Utah. Um, you know, another pretty lonely, uh, isolated Western Frontier uh, posting. And of course, he, his his isolation was was double, since uh, the white officers on post really didn't have much uh, to do with them. The term Buffalo Soldier um, comes comes from you know the Native American uh, Cheyenne and Comanche first used that in the 1870s. Uh, Kind of just to describe the soldiers' dark skin, black curly hair, they found that similar to the buffalo soldier. Uh, any anything beyond that's speculation, but it was it was really a just a, a physical description. Uh, they called them buffalo soldiers. Young is mustered out. He leaves uh, Utah, Fort Duchesne, but only because of the death of his friend, Lieutenant John Alexander. Alexander was supposed to take over a new military sciences school at Wilberforce to teach and train African-Americans. 
in the military arts. But that job falls to, to Charles Young. And Young moves to Wilberforce in 1894. And within a few years, he's got over 100 cadets. He becomes one of the most respected members of the faculty. Um, and an amazing faculty it was. We talked to Char- we talked to Brian about Charles Young and the intelligentsia, the black intelligentsia at Wilberforce back in the 1890s. So the Army, after his frontier duty, the Army assigned him here to be professor of military science at Wilberforce University. Wilberforce had one of the, well, had the oldest uh, cadet training program here. Um, and so he, he was sent here um, uh, to kind of establish the program. Um, and while here, uh, uh, he volunteered to teach many other subjects. It's, it's kind of uh, interesting. He flunked math at West Point, but he ended up volunteering to, to teach math here and, and several other courses. Um, uh, and, and as you said, while, it, while here, he, he entered this circle of influential uh, African-American uh, leaders, the Talented Tenth, um, established uh, he had a relationship even at that time with uh, 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 Booker T. Washington, uh, and uh, and then he he entered entered into these close friendships with uh, W. B. Du Bois, who was a, also instructor here at, at Wilberforce at that time. Um, he also got to know and be friends with uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, who lived the in nearby, poet, yeah. yeah, poet in in uh, in Dayton. Um, and uh, interesting, you know, the, 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 the friendship with Du Bois lasts the rest of his life. Um, uh, du Bois even, even recommended later in his later years that uh, he be a, on the executive board of, uh, of the NAACP, and Young served uh, for a short time on, on that board. Um, du Bois' biographer, uh, David Levering Lewis, wrote that Young's, Young's was the first genuine male friendship that Du Bois uh, ever had. And, and one of a handful that was where there, were, where there was genuine affinity, where they kind of treated each other as equals. Young would live a lot of his life when he wasn't, you know, serving in the army in different countries and places in the world. He would live in Wilberforce. And it was actually President Obama who, uh, who designated Young's house just up the road in Wilberforce uh, as the Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers National Monument, 2012-2013. Uh, Brian Shellam was there, a, a very cool event. You can actually watch that that uh, ceremony on YouTube. But he lived his life there. We talked to to Charles to Brian Shellam just about life in Wilberforce at the turn of the century. Yeah, he purchased he rented a house just down the street here for his initially, but but later on uh, he 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 with his help of his mother purchased the house that is currently uh, the National Monument. Um, and he used that as his uh, um, uh, life. He had a lifelong commitment to the university and the community. Um, he kept that house for the rest of his life. He would go off on on uh, uh, on, on overseas assignments or uh, assignments elsewhere. But he would always come back there. He used it as kind of a refuge uh, to kind of recover between assignments. Uh, there was a vibrant. Uh, African-American community here, so uh, and the university was always involved with the university when he came back here. You know, as I spoke with Chuck Wash uh, at, in Wilberforce at the museum, I had to ask him, how did this museum, no offense to the city of Wilberforce, but how did a national Afro-American museum and cultural center come to Wilberforce? 
But Wilberforce was chosen because of its long history. Uh, Wilberforce University uh, was founded here in 1856, 1856-1857, um, as the third oldest um, HBCU that we have in the country. Yeah. Uh, so that was here before uh, the Morrill Act in 1865, so one of three, so it's a um, very long history. The The idea of having um, a national museum here kind of spawned from that long, rich history of, of educating uh, African Americans at a time where that just wasn't very popular. This was also a mecca. You cannot ignore what was going on here. So you mentioned Colonel Charles Young, and just in passing, oh yeah, I was friends with W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Booker T. Washington. Oh yeah, by the way, we're all here together you know, at one point in time, and we were discussing the, the issues of the day. Uh, it's like, wow, we have letters in our archival collection um, going back and forth between all three uh, for, for different things. So when you talk about like Howard University as being that mecca, I mean, you have to at the same time mention Wilberforce University and, and everyone that was here. They just converged on this, on this area. One great thing about Charles Young as a topic is he lets us talk about, about two or three of the most understudied and misunderstood wars in American history. If you're an American history buff, People know still very little about the Spanish-American War uh, in 1898, one of my favorite uh, to learn about and talk about. And the even lesser known, and I, and I think still very important, Philippine-American War that followed shortly after the Spanish-American War, uh, a war that ended up being much like the Iraq War of its time, uh, turned into a real quagmire, uh, guerrilla fighting in Asia. He also served uh, and became a colonel in the punitive expedition, the war with Mexico in 1916-1917. Again, very little known. The Spanish-American War begins you know, a few weeks after the USS Maine mysteriously blows up in Havana Harbor. The United States would invade Cuba uh, and fight a war against the Spanish, really essentially kicking them out of the Western Hemisphere. They'd also go to war in the, in the Pacific on one of their holdings in the Philippines. Uh, the Battle of, of Manila, famous battle with Admiral Dewey. But as President McKinley sends the United States to war, it's a war that we'll talk about a lot more in our fifth season. Season five coming during the election year 2020, we talk about Ohio and the presidency. But for Charles Young, the war came too quick. And more importantly, it was over too quick. He's in Wilberforce and he finds himself uh, given a job where he's training Ohio volunteers, African-American volunteers. Meanwhile, his regiment is serving, not just serving, but serving with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders as they, as they climb San Juan Hill and defeat the Spanish. Charles Young would always regret that he never made it to the front, that he never made it to the battlefield in the Spanish-American War. We talked to Brian Shellam about Colonel Young, uh, who now rises to Major Young during the Spanish-American War. Yeah, he's stationed here uh, as an instructor. Uh, the war breaks out. He requests that he return to his regiment, but the uh, war, war department says, no, you stay, stay where you are. It was a very short war, and there wasn't time. The regiment just deployed so quickly, he couldn't get back to his regiment. Uh, so really, he found that his only option was uh, to, an accept, uh, uh, to accept an invitation by the governor of, of, of Ohio um, command of, of a 9th Ohio Volunteer Battalion uh, that was raised here in Ohio. 
and uh, uh, he saw that as his best chance to uh, to see some action in the war. So that, but like you said, the war's over in almost basically less than a year, and he just doesn't. Get, so he doesn't have any actual action in, in 1898. No, he uh, so he, he trains up the Ninth Ohio, gets them ready. They're they're uh, they they deploy to camp, various camps in in the on the East Coast and Virginia and the South in preparation. But the war is over too quickly. Um, uh, ironically, his ninth reg ninth uh, ninth cavalry plays a prominent role in the Spanish American War. He's not there. He's he he never forgets that missing uh, that action with his unit. But um, and Young and his and his soldiers are disappointed that they don't get to take uh, a part in the war. Um, but I think it gives Young valuable valuable leadership experience. Here he's a he's a lieutenant, but he's he becomes a major and a battalion commander in the Ohio National Guard. He leads a battalion, and I think he gains valuable uh, leadership experience and confidence from his experience. The Philippine-American War following the Spanish-American War in 1899 to, you know, 1902, 1903, really even longer, is a very much unknown war. And it's very much like the war in Iraq. We freed the Filipino people. Um, we freed Manila and, and drove out the Spanish. But the Philippine people were not just going to sit by and now be ruled by the Americans as we looked for more coaling stations and, and to grow our empire in the Pacific. Charles Young goes there to fight. Over 100,000 American troops would serve in the Philippine War. Over 6,000 would die, um, not just by the guerrilla attacks and the booby traps and the explosions and the shooting, but from the conditions, the jungle conditions. Um, so many would die from, from typhoid and, and all kinds of different ailments. But Charles Young served exceptionally in the Philippines. We ask our, our guest, Brian Shelm, to talk about his role in the Philippine-American War uh, and how his 9th and 10th Cavalry served with distinction, proving that African-American soldiers, just like they did in, in the Civil War and the Spanish-American War, that they can be just as great as soldiers as their white counterparts. So, so 19, in 1901, Captain Young's uh, stationed with, he's now a troop commander, a captain and a troop commander. He's stationed out west again, uh, again at Fort Duchesne. And... Uh, uh, the United States finds, finds themselves in this guerrilla war against uh, Filipino insurgents, and so they, um, they call on all the regular army units to uh, deploy over there and, and help the effort. So Young deploys over there. Um, you know, after some early victories in, in 1898, uh, at the beginning of the war, it, it, it turns into a costly guerrilla warfare that drags on. Um, at about the time the 9th Cavalry arrives there, um, the war has kind of changed back in favor. Uh, the momentum's gone in favor of the United States again. Uh, and, and so, but, but a, lot of, a lot of soldiers died in the fighting, but a lot of more soldiers died of disease during the war. Yeah, I mean, it's jungle warfare. Yeah, yeah. And, and Young, Young proves, again, he, he proves an outstanding uh, leader of men. Uh, during his year and a half combat operations there, he proved, uh, 
he knew how to fight in, in that type of warfare. Uh, 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 he knew when to fight and when to use diplomacy. Um, you know, something that's that's pretty pretty useful in a guerrilla war, especially in as there, there's a very interesting action up the Gandhara River that's uh, uh, that uh, I, I think he showed his talent for leadership. Um, he he instills discipline in his troop. Um, he knows when to fight. He instruct. He enforced all those rules, so he saves men, men's lives in combat, but he also saves men's lives from disease. Thanks for listening to Ohio V. The World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year, and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. This episode, we're joined by Dr. Charles Wash, the executive director of the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center that we conducted these interviews at. Chuck gave us some of his time really to talk about the legacy of Colonel Charles Young. And we also talked about the museum. He took me on a tour, uh, and it is a really special place. Some really cool exhibits. I implore our listeners to, to take a visit to Wilberforce, you know, maybe an hour from Columbus and even closer, much closer to Dayton, and check out the museum. You can go to ohiohistory.org slash visit or look up the NAA MCC uh, on the internet. Like I said, they're open. They have exhibits in a very cool place. Um, a lot of what we do centers around his memory, the things that he accomplished, because, I mean, wow, you're not really just talking about African-American history with him. You're really talking about American history and, right. and even international history, because so many, even if you were to go to Liberia today, if you go to Haiti, they still remember him. They still um, have monuments to, to his legacy there. The best way is to look online. We, uh, we have a page right off of the Ohio History Connection website, um, but if you go to www.ohiohistory.org slash N-A-A-M-C-C, you can come to our page, uh, see the latest uh, exhibits that we have, um, events that are coming up. Everything's on the page. Thanks again to Chuck Wash for joining us. And go check that museum out. I, I, I really think you'd enjoy it. You know, one of the f- cool things, the reason we're talking about Charles Young, not just because of his amazing life, is also we're trying to give you on a high view of the world, you know, something you're not going to get anywhere else. Whether it was Coxie's Army last week or Madeline Pollard the week before, we like to find those offbeat stories, and, and Charles Young fits the mold. In 1903, upon returning from the Philippines, he's rewarded. And he's a captain at the Presidio. It's a fort on the northern end of San Francisco. If he was there today, he would see the Golden Gate Bridge just outside his front door. Young and his men, his African-American soldiers, escort President Theodore Roosevelt, who'd taken the office after Ohioan William McKinley was assassinated. Roosevelt comes to San Francisco, and he knows a lot of Young's men. They served with him in Cuba. And Roosevelt knows of Young. And they actually escort Roosevelt in a parade in San Francisco. We asked Brian Shellam about that parade. Uh, and even an old video that he's seen with Roosevelt 
riding his horse down the streets of San Fran. So Young and the 9th Cavalry, part of the 9th Cavalry, his squadron are stationed at the Presidio of San Francisco after the Philippine Wars, kind of a reward for their service. Um, and in, in May of 1903, Theodore Roosevelt goes on a Western tour and, and, and has a stop in San Francisco. And uh, uh, he participates in this, in this parade down Market Street in, in San Francisco in, in, uh, in May. And, and uh, Young and, and two troops of the 9th Cavalry get selected as his honor guard. So he rides at the head of... Uh, I even found a, there's, there's a very old 1903 uh, scratchy video uh, in, in the National Archives. And you can see them... Uh, uh, marching down the street and escorting his carriage. Interesting, in the video you see the first use of um, Secret Service guards on either side of his carriage because his predecessor had been assassinated. Um, so uh, Roosevelt respected the 9th Cavalry, uh, chose them to be his escort um, because he had served with them, charging up uh, San Juan Hill with Rough Riders. Young would become the first black superintendent of a national park at Sequoia National Park in Northern California. He's still remembered up there. There's a highway uh, in Sequoia named after him uh, in an exhibit as well. But Young was a scholar, and he becomes a, a voice, a leading voice, as a leading man in the African-American world towards civil rights, towards equality. He gives a famous speech at Stanford. We asked Brian about his white man's chance speech, given while he's the superintendent at Sequoia National Park. Yeah, um, so Charles, Captain Charles Young, he leads two troops uh, into Sequoia National Park uh, the summer of 1903. Uh, I mean, right after Roosevelt's visit. Um, many, many people don't know that the, uh, the Army patrolled our national parks at that time until the creation of the National Park Service in 1917. Congress created these national parks, but they didn't create any organization to patrol and protect them. So the Army did that job in, in this time period. Um, so he, he, was, he was seconded to the Interior Department for that period, which in, and since he commanded the two troops there, that made him the first black uh, superintendent of one of our national parks. Uh, and, and during that summer, they were there from May until October, uh, they accomplished more in one year as far as work and opening trails than the previous three. And uh, he led, and, and interestingly, he, he, he led his black soldiers who did a lot of patrolling, keeping poachers out, opening smaller trails, but he also uh, led a force of, of white engineers and white workers there um, who did a lot of the work uh, opening the main road uh, to the park. Uh, shortly after his return from, Sequ uh, from Sequoia, um, he was invited to go to Stanford University uh, to give a, a talk. Um, and, and that's where he made this impassioned plea to give, a, uh, give, a, uh, give black Americans a white man's chance. And uh, this is a time, interesting, when, when Young is kind of, uh, he's becoming an influ influential leader. Um, he, he had, a, he had a, uh, an important meeting. He hosted uh, Booker T. Washington in San Francisco uh, uh, before he went out to Sequoia. Uh, but he was, he was becoming a more 
more of a proponent of, of civil rights. He was more he was becoming more aligned with the uh, the civil uh, civil rights as a, as an activist, more along the lines of, of uh, uh, Du Bois uh, than than the more accommodating position of uh, Booker T. Washington. Charles Young was multifaceted, a renaissance man, a great musician who, who wrote his own music, uh, a man who wrote, a man who discussed the issues of the day with the leading African-American scholars of the day. We asked Brian about this renaissance man, Charles Young. It's one of the aspects of him that I, I find so fascinating. Yeah, he uh, spoke a half a dozen languages, uh, which, which helped during his time as an attache overseas. Uh, he he found time uh, during his uh, uh, his military duties to to um, well he he'd always been a talented musician uh, since he was growing up in in Ripley but he continued to, to to play music he played piano played the violin the, you know a number of instruments and and towards the end of his life he even composed music um, there's there's a collection here of of, of the music that that he composed. Uh, we've even gotten one of the pieces uh, put to music. It's pretty interesting to hear that so many years later. But he's very talented. He wrote a book. Uh, he wrote poetry. Uh, he tried to write a screenplay. Um, so you're you're right. It's amazing that a man who was such a uh, spent you know 28 years as a as a military officer had found time to to write to write poetry to to compose music and and to, and, and his music. Uh, if you you look at his time in the military, oftentimes he he used music as as a way to escape his isolation uh, on on frontier military posts, and, and uh, music was really important to him. Young was what you would call a race man. He's by far the highest ranking African American soldier, and he has the entire weight and reputation of African-American officers on his back. He's the one who's leading the way. Like we said, there wouldn't be anyone graduating, a black American graduating from West Point for 47 years after Young. It's a lot of pressure. We talk with, with Brian Shellam, you know, about the example that he had to set and who he was able to find as peers as he, as he really was his own mentor. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't really... Uh, for, for a while, he's mentored by John Alexander, who graduated two years earlier than he did from West Point. They served together at, uh, at Fort Duchesne, but John Alexander mentors him. But then John Alexander goes off and, and dies suddenly of a heart attack here in, in, in Wilberforce. And so really after that, he didn't have any other mentors. He was the man. And so he's driven to be the point man for his race in the Army for the rest of his career. Uh, it's got to, it had to be a terribly lonely position to be in. A lot of pressure. Yeah, and and really the only mentors he have he has then are probably in civilian life. Uh, du Bois probably is a mentor, uh, an equal, uh, intellectually uh, equal. Another little known American conflict was called the Punitive Expedition, the the war with Pancho Villa in Mexico between the United States and Mexico. Uh, over 10,000 U.S. troops are, are sent to Mexico in 1916. 
General John Pershing is there. And so is, so is Charles Young. He's sent to Mexico where, again, he serves with valor. But the reason we're in Mexico is they just had so much political turmoil, really since like 1910, really since, you know, the, since the Mexican-American War and before that. The United States in 1915 decides to back the Carranza government, the rival of Pancho Villa, a, a bandit but political leader uh, and an expert tactician. The Americans immediately have trouble with Villa's men. They pull 16 employees off a train, strip them, and execute them in 1916. Americans begin to send troops to the area, more troops. And on March 9, 1916, Villa crosses the border into Columbus, New Mexico. There's troops there, and they burn the city. They kill 10 civilians and 8 American soldiers. They take weapons and and all the food and, and horses, and they burn Columbus, New Mexico to the ground. President Wilson's furious, and he sends men like Colonel Young after Via, the punitive expedition, as it was called. We talked to Brian Shellam about the war to find Pancho Villa from 1916-1917 that leads to Charles Young becoming a colonel. I think there had been problems in Mexico uh, since 1910. They'd had border problems, but uh, they kind of came to a head in uh, 1916. Pancho Villa uh, made a raid across uh, the border into Columbus, New Mexico, uh, killed a bunch of Americans, uh, killed and wounded a bunch of Americans, and President Wilson decided that was enough, sent Pershing down with a military force to, to kill or capture uh, uh, Villa. And of course, they never did. They never did either. They never caught him. Uh, and Young was by then. Uh, uh, he was uh, a major. Uh, he had just come back from his uh, first tour in, in uh, Liberia. He was a major and, and a squadron commander. So by that time, he commanded a squadron, one third of the Tenth Cavalry. He was now with the Tenth Cavalry for the first time. Yeah. So Young, Young, Young squadron uh, surprised a body of about 150 Valistas under uh, General Beltran uh, and, and attacked them. Uh, and under the cover of overhead machine gun fire, machine guns were very new at that time. Uh, he had a machine gun troop uh, that, that uh, supplied covering fire and then Major Young directed, uh, led his second squadron to assault the enemy on their flank, forcing them to retreat in disorder, didn't lose a man. And uh, he was the, it was the, as far as I can find, the first documented use in U.S. US combat of um, machine guns in a coordinated assault. Uh, and he was successful because he used the uh, element of surprise and his unit was well-trained. So we're talking to Brian. We got to talk about this story in the book about uh, his experience, Colonel Young's experience with, with Patton, George Patton, who had become such an important general in World War II. But he's in Mexico. He's serving uh, with Young, and really this color line that Young always had to respect, even into the, now, you know, we're in 1960, 1917, and still after all these years, um, you know, in 30 almost years of service, he still has to kowtow to his white counterparts, and, and just the tough color line that you had to run to be Colonel Young. There's a, there's a, a well-known, in, in, in Patton's, uh, memoirs. Uh, there, there's an episode where Patton and, and Young are serving in Mexico together. Under uh, Pershing. Under Pershing. The, uh, 
the 50th, uh, the 9th Cavalry is celebrating its 50th anniversary, form, form, formed in 1866. This is 1916. So Young gets his non-commissioned officers together and they put on this play, kind of a march of the 9th Cavalry through time. They, they wear all their uniforms, they reenact all these battles against Native Americans, against Cuba, against Spanish in Cuba. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a dinner after the play. Young comes in, he kind of makes his appearance, and he leaves. Here's, here's the show that they put on. He won't even stay for the, his, for the meal his, with his yeah. fellow white officers. And, his and, cavalry. Yeah, and, and, and Patton finds this gallant that, that Young, uh, this is, and it's just another case where he, he, has to, he has to navigate this color line. Young returns to Wilberforce following Mexico, and the United States enters World War I in 1970. Young is, is promoted to, be, to colonel. He has to go to a, a medical examination. And this medical examination would end up putting the halts on his career. In 1917, while he's in Mexico, um, he gets promoted to lieutenant colonel by seniority. And then shortly after they come back from uh, Mexico, they redeploy the United States, and he goes up for promotion to colonel. Promotions are accelerating in preparation for World War One, and uh, so he goes up for promotion to colonel. Uh, he's found professionally qualified for promotion, uh, but the but the medical examination found he suffered from uh, blood in his urine and high blood pressure, uh, 220 to 230 over 140 to 150, very high blood pressure. Uh, he has Bright's disease, so he's, he's medically retired and promoted to colonel on the inactive list. Young badly wants to serve in World War I, but he's getting a lot of fight back from the, from the White House. Senators who complained to to Virginia-based President Woodrow Wilson, a segregated army. He'd segregated basically the federal employees. And he wasn't going to do Colonel Young any favors. We talked to Brian about the political uh, wranglings, maneuverings, to try and keep Charles Young and African-American troops from serving in Europe. Yeah, it's a political decision uh, not to call him back on active duty and, and as a colonel and employ Young to lead black troops in Europe. Uh, he, President Wilson, who was a Southerner, as he said, Southern Democrat, he, he was actively segregating the federal bureaucracy at that time, no friend to blacks. Uh, he, wanted, he wanted Young sidelined, and he directed uh, Secretary Baker to keep Young out of the Army and out of the war effort. Uh, as you said, he had received uh, complaints from Southern senators uh, who had gotten complaints from their constituents who were white officers who served under Young in Mexico. They found uh, that a difficult situation. Uh, so this kind of, the medical examination was kind of, kind of an excuse to keep him sidelined. But Young was a known commodity, a great officer. Whether it was General Pershing, the leader of the Allied forces, or the leader of the American Expeditionary Force in Europe, you know, backing him. Or whether it was President Roosevelt, who was trying to raise his own army again, just like he did in the Spanish-American War with the Rough Riders, trying to raise some new Rough Riders and have Colonel Young lead the African-American regiment. But it was the White House and the War Department and the Congress that wanted to keep not just you know, Colonel Young, but African-American troops in general from being involved in the war. 
from being involved in the main fighting in Europe on the Western Front. Yeah, yeah Roosevelt and Young exchanged letters on that, uh, and, and that was an idea that that uh, uh, Roosevelt had to have him uh, lead a, uh, a brigade of, of, of black National Guard troops. Um, this was an attempt for Teddy to repeat his, you know, his his service in in the Spanish-American War with the Rough Riders, but it wasn't something that the War Department ever seriously considered. Uh, uh, but the you know the black press picked up on it, and it was and it was an important thing, probably more important than than this was. Uh, General Pershing uh, respected Young's service in in Mexico. He'd served under him, and he he. Penned Young as one, you know, on his list of uh, officers he wanted to have as a as a brigade commander leading a Black National Guard uh, brigade uh, in Europe. So he he had Pershing's uh, recommendation, which you, you don't get any better than that. In 1918, as troops are pouring into Europe and the fighting rages in World War One with the Germans, Charles Young is on the outside, but he's a man of action and he doesn't sit there. Instead, to show his, his health and to show that he's still got what it takes, he decides to take a ride, ride his horse from Wilberforce, Ohio, all the way to Washington, D.C. to talk to Secretary War Baker. This is one of the coolest parts of his story. You know, he's 52, 53 years old, uh, whatever it is, and he still wants to be back in the war. He wants to serve his country, and he makes a very difficult ride. We talk with Brian Shellam about Colonel Young's ride. Even though he was sick on the inside, I mean, he's, he, he appeared to be a fit man, and he felt like he was fit enough to, to serve his country. That's all he wanted to do, serve his country, lead black troops in Europe. So to, to prove his fitness, um, he rode uh, 497, about 500 miles, uh, from Wilberforce to uh, D.C., uh, average about 30 miles a day uh, as a way to demonstrate his fitness for command, not only for the War Department, but for, you know, black Americans. Uh, he covered the distance in 16 days, uh, slept, slept in small towns, and or sometimes slept on the ground along the way, uh, through Ohio, West Virginia, through Virginia, uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, he finally got to D.C. He got an appointment with Secretary of War Baker. Baker made promises, uh, but, but they never came to anything. It was, a, it was purely a political decision to keep Young sidelined. You want to know just how not concerned with Colonel Young's health the War Department was? They make him a military attaché back to Liberia in 1919 following the war. Right back to a difficult job across the world, back to Africa. He takes the position. Colonel Young doesn't refuse orders, even though he could have easily retired at this point and stayed with his family and his friends and his great life in Wilberforce, Ohio. But it's here that Colonel Young would meet his end on the African continent. We talked to Brian about his death and his final mission in Liberia. Right. Yeah, I, th I think there's no doubt that Young, uh, he was a sick man. He had Bright's disease. He had high blood pressure. But President Wilson and Secretary Baker should have done the right thing and uh, called him back on active duty and had him lead troops in, in Europe. Um, I think his posting to Liberia in 1919 
is clear proof how disingenuous they were uh, in that decision. You know, in, instead of recalling on active duty to go serve in Europe, they send him to West Africa. What made him well enough to serve in West Africa? And it, uh, it was all about race. Uh, and 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 Young Young was uh, he was urged by Du Bois to to turn down the assignment uh, and stay home, enjoy his retirement, be with his family. Uh, but he couldn't. He couldn't refuse the assignment. He just could not refuse an assignment for the country and the and the army that he loved. So he accepted the assignment. Uh, went to Liberia in 1919, and he died of his lingering ailments in in Africa in 1922. Uh, it ended his it ended his life. But I don't think it, it certainly didn't end his story. We're still talking about him today. ultimately buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full military honors. June 1st, 1923, we march down the streets in a funeral procession. Thousands of people show up. A memorial service at the, at the amphitheater at, at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, and there's pictures that you, we can find and we'll post on the website or on the Facebook of, of that funeral. It's incredible. It was big news. We talked to Brian about Colonel Young being laid to rest. Yeah, he's, he's initially, he dies in, in Nigeria. He's buried with uh, full milita British military honors in Lagos, in, in the White Cemetery in, in Lagos. Uh, his widow, Ada, says, I want, you know, I want my husband's body brought back to the United States. And so after a year of uh, paperwork and, and uh, uh, they finally get him so sent back um, he, he comes back to Arlington after uh, a lot of uh, celebrations and fanfare in New York City, uh, in Baltimore along the way, Philadelphia. Comes back to, the, to, the, to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, the black schools in, in Washington, D.C. are closed for the day. The black citizens line the streets to watch his uh, casket being uh, carried through the town. Goes to Arlington Cemetery. As you said, there's a there's a ceremony in the amphitheater, which before that he was only the fourth one to ever have a ceremony in that amphitheater. The fourth African American. Yeah. The no, the fourth person, period, to ever have a uh, oh, wow. a, a ceremony uh, in that amphitheater, and and then he's buried on a hill, not almost a stone's throw throw away from the amphitheater, uh, where he still uh, still lies. So it was a it was a uh, a huge outpouring of, of support from the African-American community at the time. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Ooh. 
Our book recommendation for today is Brian Shellam. Our guest has, has done such an amazing job researching Colonel, uh, Colonel Charles Young and, and so many other officers and soldiers that he served with. Uh, but we recommend on Amazon, there's a link in the show description, a black officer in a Buffalo Soldier Regiment, the military career of Charles Young. Um, you can get it on Kindle, and, and it's a really cool book. So we got him to sign our copy of it. But when we have authors on the show, like Brian Shellam, uh, kind of like inside the actor's studio, we like to talk to them just about, you know, how do you become the leading scholar about, you know, a single African American military officer? What started him on this journey, and and what you know sources we love to know about the writing process. So we asked Brian, you know, how did he become the leading scholar on Colonel Charles Young? I found uh, a, a career in history after uh, I retired from the army. Uh, I was a historian serving at the Defense Intelligence Agency, a federal defense intelligence agency in the United States, uh, in Washington D.C. and uh, uh, I, I came, uh, 1996, I was looking for a Black History Month uh, subject to uh, kind of spotlight for the workforce, uh, and, I, and I discovered uh, Colonel Young. He was the first black military attache. DI is responsible for the history of, of military attaches. Right, so intelligence, like, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was a, a great subject. Um, and I, just be, I, I immediately became fascinated with the man. Uh, and, and I quickly found out that serious research hadn't been done on his life. And uh, so I've been on his trail since 1996. And here I am uh, almost, well, 22 years later, and I'm still there. Four, four books later, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the first place I came was here to Wilberforce to the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center. And they had, they had a lot of material uh, on Charles Young. They didn't have it all, and, and it was kind of a mystery of where it all was. Uh, Charles Young was a pack rat, his wife was a pack rat, and they knew the stuff had to be there. Well, I finally found uh, uh, two women in Akron, Ohio, and they had all of his stuff up in their attic. Um, they had acquired it, and, and uh, so I, I spent uh, Three or four weekends there, scanning and and uh, copying everything I could. Uh, uh, I, I convinced them that I was uh, a historian who was writing his story, and they let me in. And and <laughs> and, and eventually, I you know, sometimes you, you get to you get a chance to do more than write as a historian. So eventually, I convinced uh, those two sisters that it wasn't uh, their attic wasn't the best place for those, and so I convinced them to donate. The materials to the Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers, I mean, uh, to 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 the uh, museum here, the, the National Afro American Museum and Cultural Center. Thanks again to Brian for joining us. Uh, he's got a new book, African Americans in Liberia, 1910 to 1942. So go check that out. Also, a special thanks to Dr. Charles Wash, Executive Director here at the National Afro American Museum and Cultural Center in Wilberforce, Ohio. Uh, thank you so much. Go to ohiohistory.org backslash visit uh, backslash N-A-A-M-C-C or just look up the museum. It's a great place. You got to come check it out. Thanks again. Lastly, to our sponsor, GoBus, uh, RideGoBus.com. Again, the best bus service in, in the state of Ohio. And you can check their routes all over the state and their very cheap tickets uh, and just go to their website, RideGoBus.com. 
So that'll do it, guys. It's episode eight, Ohio versus discrimination. Next week, we're so fired up. Uh, I'm sorry, two weeks. It'll be Super Bowl Sunday. When we're going to come out with Jim Trafficking versus the world. Uh, it'll be a, a little change up on our normal episode titles because it's about Congressman Jim Trafficking of Youngstown, Ohio. We'll talk with Mahoning Valley native and Los Angeles-based filmmaker Eric Murphy about the life of Jim Trafficking um, and his, his movie, The Congressman of Crime Town, which I urge you to go check out uh, on Vimeo. Uh, it's just a couple of bucks to rent, and it's a really, really good, um, really, really good movie. So some people in that movie that you'll recognize, whether you're an Ohioan or not. Um, and again, we'll be with Eric Murphy. We're going to talk about trafficking and sure to be our, our most Youngstown episode we've had, and we've already had a few. That'll do it. Thanks again to our guests uh, and buy Brian's book to learn more about Charles Young. Get, your, get yourself down to the, to the National Afro-American Museum cultural center and and check out wilberforce ohio a lot of history a lot of important stuff and an american hero uh the base for charles young so we'll see you guys in a couple weeks for our trafficking episode enjoy the snow thanks a lot for listening ohio view the world is brought to you by go bus hit up ridegobus.com and all ohio bus service whether you're going from cleveland to cincinnati or the ten dollar trip from athens to columbus you can recline in their comfy chairs or download our newest episode using their free onboard Wi-Fi. GoBus is the safest and classiest way to travel the Buckeye State. So make sure you check out RideGoBus.com for their routes and their cheap rates that'll get any Ohioan where they need to go in style. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.